Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Following is chapter 12, The Legend of Nimrod, from Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. The universal sentiment of the Freemasons of the present day is to confer upon Solomon, King of Israel, the honor of being their first Grand Master. But the legend of the craft had long before, though there was a tradition of the temple in existence, given, at least by suggestion, that title to Nimrod, the King of Babylonia and Assyria. It had credited the first organization of a fraternity of craftsmen to him in saying that he gave a charge to the workmen whom he sent to assist the king of Nineveh in building his cities. That is to say, he framed for them a constitution. And, in the words of the legend, this was the first time that ever Masons had any charge of his science. It was the first time that the craft were organized into a fraternity working under a constitution or a body of laws. As Nimrod was the autocratic maker of these laws, it necessarily resulted that the first legislator, creating laws with his unlimited and absolute governing power, was also their first Grand Master. This view of the early history of Freemasonry, presented to us by the legend of the craft, which differs so much from the modern opinion, is worthy of at least a passing consideration, although it is almost now out of use. Who was this Nimrod who held so exalted a position in the eyes of the old legendists, and why had they assigned to him a rank and power which modern craftsmen have thought to belong more justly to the king of Israel? The answers to these questions will be fitting comments on that part of the legend of the craft which contains the story of the old Assyrian monarch. The respect for the character of Nimrod, which has been freely held by the ancients as well as the moderns, obtains no support from the brief account of him contained in the book of Genesis. Josephus shows him as a tyrant in his government of his people, vain of his great power, a despiser and hater of God, and urged by this feeling, the builder of a tower through which he would avenge himself on God for having destroyed the world at the flood. For this view of Nimrod, Josephus was probably indebted to the legends of the Eastern writers, tales which clung around the famous name, just as in the ancient times legends always did cluster around great and mighty men. Thus, in the ancient writings, he was said to be of giant size, 10 or 12 cubits in height. He was credited with the invention of idol worship, and he is said to have returned to Chaldea under the destruction of the Tower of Babel, and to have persuaded the people there to become fire worshippers. He built a large furnace and ordered that all who refused to worship fire should be cast into it. Among his victims were Abraham, or Abram, the patriarch, and his father, Terah. The latter was consumed, but the former, by a miracle, came out unhurt. It is hardly necessary to say that such legends are altogether mythical and of no historical value. The scriptural account of Nimrod is a very brief and unsatisfactory one. It is merely that, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. 
Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth and Kala, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. Learned students of the Bible have differed over the translation of the 11th verse. The Septuagint, the Vulgate, Luther's, and our own recognized versions say, Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. Higden, in the Polychronicon, which was, as we have seen, the source of the Masonic legend, adopts the same reading. And the Cook and the later manuscripts credit the building of Nineveh and the other cities of Assyria to Asher, the son of Shem, and the kinsmen of Nimrod, who assisted him with workmen. Such was the legend until the beginning of the 18th century. But some of the most reliable scholars, such as Borhart, Leclerc, Jacinius, and many others, insist that Asher is not the name of a person, but of a country, and that the passage should be read thus, Out of that land he, Nimrod, went forth to Assyria, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. This is the form of the legend that was adopted by Dr. Anderson, and by the author of the Kraus document, and after the publication of Anderson's work, it took the place of the older form. The craft, in both forms of the legend, saw Nimrod as a great Freemason. Nor has the abuse of Josephus and the vile legends of the Orientalists had the slightest effect on their apparent esteem of that mighty king, the founder of nations and the builder of cities. And now, in the latter part of the 19th century, comes a learned scholar, well acquainted with the language of the ancient Babylonians and Assyrians, and with the involved cuneiform alphabet in which it is clothed, and visiting the remains of the ruined cities which Nimrod had built, finds the fragments of twelve tablets which contain the history of a Babylonian monarch to whom for the present he gave the name Isdabar, and whom he identified with Nimrod. If this claim be correct, and there is certainly strong internal evidence in favor of it, we have in these tablets a fairly straightforward story of the doings of the first king of Babylon, which places his character in a better light than that which had up to that time been received as the popular belief founded on the reports from Josephus and other eastern writers. The Isdabar legends, as Smith has called the inscriptions on these tablets, represent Nimrod as a mighty leader, a man of great daring in war and in hunting, and who, by his ability and valor, had united many of the small kingdoms into which the whole of the valley of the Euphrates was at that time divided, and thus founded the first empire in Asia. He was, in fact, the hero of the ancient Babylonians, and therefore it was only natural that they should honor the memory of him, who as a great and good king had at first given them that unity which secured their prosperity as a nation. If we now refer to the legend of the craft, we shall find that the old Masonic legendist, although of course he had never seen nor heard of the discoveries contained in the cuneiform inscriptions, had rejected the traditional estimate of Nimrod's character, as well as the supposed results of the destruction of the Tower of Babel, and had wisely selected Babylon as the first seat, and Nimrod, whoever may have been meant by that name, as the founder of the sciences and especially of architecture. There is in this an agreement of the legendary account with the facts of history, not usual with legendists. We must give, says Canon Rawlinson, the Babylonians credit for a genius and a grandeur of conception rarely surpassed, which led them to employ the labor whereof they had the command in works of so imposing a character. With only brick for stone, and at first only slime for mortar, they constructed edifices of so vast a size that they still remain at the present day, among the most enormous ruins in the world, impressing the beholder at once with awe and admiration. The legend of the craft continually confuses masonry, geometry, and architecture, 
or rather uses them as names meaning the same thing and therefore should be used for each other. It is not surprising that the legend selects Babylon as the birthplace and Nimrod as the founder of what was called the science. The use of his name in the legend may be credited, says the Reverend Brother Woodford, to an old assumption that rulers were patrons of the building's sodalities. One may the rather imagine that the idea is to be traced to the fact that Nimrod was supposed to be a patron of architecture and the building of a great number of cities. In the Middle Ages, the operative Freemasons were always ready to accept any noted architect or builder as a patron and member of the craft. Thus, the history of Freemasonry, compiled by Dr. Anderson out of the old records, is nothing but a history of architecture, and almost every king, prelate, or nobleman who had ever erected a palace, a church, or a castle is called a distinguished Freemason and a patron of the institution. Chapter 13, The Legend of Euclid Having settled the foundation of Freemasonry in Babylon, the legend of the craft next proceeds by a quick change to tell the history of its movement into Egypt. This Egyptian account, which in reference to the principal action in it has been called the legend of Euclid, is found in all the old manuscripts. This legend is the opening feature of the Hallowell poem, being in that document the beginning of the history of Masonry. It is told with very much detail in the Cook manuscript, and is apparently copied from that into all later manuscripts, where the important particulars are about the same, although we find a few things told in some which are left out in others. Stripping from the story its out-of-date style, the legend may be re rewritten from the manuscripts thus. Once upon a time, as the storytellers say, Abraham and his wife went to Egypt. Now Abraham was very learned in all the seven arts and sciences, and was accompanied by Euclid, who was his pupil, and to whom he had imparted his knowledge. At that time the lords or rich men of Egypt were sorely troubled, because having a very large number of sons, for whom they could find no business, they knew not how they could obtain for them a livelihood. In this strait they held a council and made it generally known that if any one could suggest a remedy, he should lay his plans before them, when he should be suitably rewarded. Upon this, Euclid presented himself and offered to supply these sons with an honest means of living by teaching them the science of geometry, provided they should be placed by their fathers under his full control so that he might have the power of ruling them according to the laws of the craft. The Egyptian nobles gladly agreed to this plan and granted Euclid all the power that he had asked and secured the grant to him by a sealed warrant. Euclid then instructed them in the practical part of geometry and taught them how to erect churches, castles, towers, and all other kinds of buildings in stone. He also gave them a code of laws for their government. Thus did Euclid found in the land of Egypt the science which he named geometry, but which has ever since been called Freemasonry. While all the manuscripts agree in the principal particulars of this legend, there are in some of them a few variations as to the minor details. Thus, the Hallowell poem makes no mention of Abraham, but the credits the founding of Masonry to Euclid alone, and it will be remembered that the title of that poem is The Constitutions of the Art of Geometry According to Euclid. The Cook Manuscript is far more full in details than either the Hallowell poem or the manuscripts that followed it. It says that Abraham taught geometry to the Egyptians, and that Euclid was his pupil. But a few lines after, quoting St. Isidore as its authority, it says that Euclid was one of the first founders of geometry, 
and that in his time there was an overflow of the Nile, and he taught them to make dikes and walls to hold back the water, and measured the land by means of geometry, and divided it among the inhabitants, so that every man could enclose his own property with ditches and walls. Because of this, the land became fertile, and the people increased such, to such a degree that there was difficulty in finding for all employment that would enable them to live. Whereupon the nobles gave the government of their children to Euclid, who taught them the art of geometry, so called because he had with it its aid measured the land, when he built the walls and ditches to separate each one's possessions from his neighbors. Needless repetitions and confusion of details in the Cook manuscript show that the author had derived the information on which he constructed his legend from various sources, partly from the authority of St. Isidore, as he is quoted in Higdon's Polychronicon, and partly from the tradition of the craft. We see that the later manuscripts have copied the details of the legend as it is found in the Cook manuscript, but with many items left out, so as to give it the form in which it is known to the craft in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Dowland manuscript, whose date is supposed to be about 1550, gives the story almost exactly as it is in the Hallowell poem, except that it adds Abraham and Sarah to the list of persons taking part, making it in this respect agree with the Cook manuscript, and probably with the form of the original legend. This pattern is followed by other manuscripts. The Grand Lodge No. 1, the York No. 1, the Sloan, the Lodge of Hope, the Alnick, and even the Papworth manuscript as late as 1720. The Lansdowne Manuscript and the Antiquity have the legend in a very imperfect form, and either the writers did not copy or they purposely left out much of the Dowland Manuscript, as they but slightly refer to Egypt and to Euclid, and not at all to Abraham. The reputation for great learning which the legendists have given to Abraham, although the Bible dwells only on his religious faith, they found in Josephus, as well as in Isidore. Josephus says that among the Egyptians he was esteemed as a very wise man, and that besides reforming their customs, he taught them arithmetic and astronomy. Therefore, it is evident that the legend of the craft owes much of its materials to the antiquities of Josephus and the etymologies of St. Isidore and the Polychronicon of Ranulf Higdon, the first two at second hand, and in all probability through the quotations of those works which are made in the last-named book. The Krauss manuscript, which is said to have been translated from the English into the Latin and afterward into German, and published by Dr. Krauss, gives the legend in an entirely different form. While this document is generally classed as not genuine and with a date of not earlier than the second decade, or perhaps towards the middle of the 18th century, yet as an indication of the growth and the change of the legend at that period, it will be worthwhile to compare its form with that of the older manuscripts at least so far as it relates to Egypt, which is in the following words. Abraham was skilled in all the sciences, and continued to teach them to the sons of the freeborn, whence afterwards came the many learned priests and mathematicians who were known by the name of the Chaldean Magi. Afterwards, Abraham continued to propagate these sciences and arts when he came to Egypt, and found there, especially in Hermes, so apt a scholar that the latter was at length called the Trismegistus of the Sciences, for he was at the same time priest and natural philosopher in Egypt. And through him and a scholar of his, the Egyptians received the first good laws and all the sciences in which Abraham had instructed him. Afterwards, Euclid collected the principal sciences and called them geometry, but the Greeks and Romans called them altogether architecture. But in consequence of the confusion of languages, the laws and arts and sciences could not formerly be propagated until the people had learned to make comprehensible by signs that which they could not understand by words. 
Wherefore Mizraim, the son of Cam, brought the custom of making himself understood by signs with him into Egypt, when he colonized the valley of the Nile. This art was afterwards extended into all distant lands, but only the signs that are given by the hands have remained in architecture, for the signs by figures are as yet known to be but few. In Egypt, the overflowings of the Nile afforded an opportunity to use the art of measurement, which had been introduced by Mizraim, and to build bridges and walls as a protection against the water. They used burnt stone and wood and earth for these purposes. Therefore, when the heathen kings had become acquainted with this, they were compelled to prepare stone and lime and bricks, and therewith to erect buildings, by which through God's will, however, they became only the more experienced artists, and were so celebrated that their art spread as far as Persia. If the reader compares this legend of the Krauss manuscript with that which is given by Dr. Anderson in the first edition of his Constitutions, he will be forced to admit that both documents are taken from the same source, or that one of them is an ex extract or an explanation in brief of the other. It is clear that the statement in Anderson is merely a general view of that more detailed account contained in the Krauss legend, or that it is extended from the story in the first edition of the Constitutions. Should we assume that the Krauss manuscript was written before Anderson prepared his history, it could not have been long before that time, and must have been between the date of the Papworth manuscript, which contains the legend in its earliest form, and 1723 when Anderson published his work. Within this period, the Masons sought to change the old legend of the craft so as to deprive it of the seeming contradictions, and to omit its confusion of periods so as to give it the appearance of a reliable history of events. Instead, therefore, of having the date of 926, which has been given to it by Dr. Krauss, his manuscript is, as Brother Hugan thinks it, a compilation of the early part of the 18th century. It is, however, important because it shows how the old legend was improved and cleared of its mistakes. Certainly, it is a blundering mixture of historical periods to make Euclid the associate of Abraham, who lived more than 2,000 years before him. Nor is it less absurd to suppose that Euclid invented masonry in Egypt, whence it was carried to India and practiced by King Solomon, since the great student of geometry did not flourish until six centuries and a half after the building of the temple. If then we consider it as a historical narrative, the legend of Euclid is a failure. Yet, it has its value as unfolding symbols of certain historical facts. We may clearly see that the leading points in this legend are those on which the old believers of it most strongly insisted. 1. That geometry is the, is the groundwork of masonry. 2. That Euclid was the most noted of all experts in geometry. And 3. That the secret method of teaching this, as well as all the other sciences which was pursued by the priests of Egypt, was very like unto that which was used by the operative Freemasons of the Middle Ages in teaching their disciples the geometric architectural secrets which were what they called the mystery of the craft. The legend, in fact, symbolizes the well-known fact that in Egypt, in early times, when there was no historical objection to make Abraham of that period of time, there was a very close connection between the science of geometry and the religious system of the Egyptians, that this religious system included also all scientific teaching, that this instruction was secret and given only after an initiation, and that in that way there was a striking likeness between the Egyptian system and that of the Freemasons of the Middle Ages. And this fact of a relation between the two, the latter sought to present in the form of a history, but really in the spirit of a symbolic picture. If we thus consider the legend of the craft in its story of Euclid and his marvelous doings in the land of Egypt, it is stripped of its absurdity, and it is brought somewhat nearer to the limits of historical truth than the two-matter-of-fact reader would be disposed to admit.
Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.